0: Our New Testament reading for this morning is found in Matthew 7, verses 1 through 6. Do not judge, so that you will not be judged. For in the way that you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of your measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye? And behold, the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before the swine, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Thank you, Tyler, for reading that for us so clearly this morning. Let's keep it open then in front of us as we turn to ask uh, for God's help today. Father, we need your help and ask, therefore, that your Spirit would open our eyes so that today we might see ourselves as we really are and then be changed by your Spirit that we might better reflect the love and grace, the beauty and wonder of our Lord Jesus Christ in whose precious name and for whose sake we pray. Amen. Westboro Baptist Church in Topeka, Kansas, is a family-based cult fellowship built around its patriarch, Fred Phelps. They have, over the years, gained the reputation as one of the most hate-filled and condemnatory groups in America, relishing in the prospect of eternal damnation and delighting to pronounce it against the sinners who surround them. They particularly specialize in anti-gay vitriol. The church came to public attention in June 1991 when they began their picketing ministry. In light with their tightly held beliefs on predestination, the picketing is not aimed to evangelize or win the lost, but just to announce the coming damnation. Since 1991, they have engaged in over 40,000 pickets, on average, six protests a day, harassing local businesses, including a local restaurant, every day, three times a day, because the owner employs a woman engaged in a same-sex lifestyle. But perhaps most sickening of all was the attempt of the group following the death of a student, Matthew Shepherds, in a gay hate crime in 1998, to build a granite monument in a park in Wyoming, declaring, Matthew Shepherd entered hell October the 12th, 1998, in defiance of God's warning. The monument was banned by local zoning, but nevertheless, They went ahead and put it on their website, a virtual memorial to Matthew Shepard, which depicts him burning in hell. This morning we need to understand, in the clearest possible terms, that this grotesque kind of spiritual superiority has no place in the Christian life. And even if we aren't as crass as that, yet secretly in our own hearts, and perhaps in micro areas of our own church culture, we need to see that any kind of judgmentalism like this is not fit for the gospel of grace. And that's clear as we turn to chapter 7, verse 1, as Jesus commands in the simplest and clearest of terms… Do not judge. A couple of weeks ago, Jesus was condemning showy religion, and we felt the rebuke of that. Now he turns to censorious religion. And this call of Jesus is revolutionary. If we were to live this out this coming week and month, it would be liberating and transformatory of our own lives and culture. One commentator puts it like this, and it's no exaggeration. This section of the Sermon on the Mount consists of five short verses and only 100 words, and yet it is hardly too much to say at face value that this is the most staggering document ever presented to mankind. In these five verses, we are told more about the nature of man, the meaning of life, and the importance of conducts, and the art of living, and the importance of life, and the secret of happiness, and the way out of trouble, and the way to approach God, and the emancipation of the soul, and the salvation of the world, than all philosophers, and theologians, and servants put together have told us. It explains the great law. It is vastly more important that a man, still more a child, be taught the meaning of these five verses than he should learn anything else that is taught in school or college. There is nothing to be found in the ordinary course of study. There is nothing to be learned in any library or laboratory that is one millionth as important as the information contained here. If it was ever possible to justify the fanatical saying... Burn the rest of the books, for it is all in this one. It would be in reference to these words, our text today. Because what Jesus is alerting us to is the twin danger of condemnation and then accommodation. And those are our two headings this morning, which you can find on your sheets if you're taking notes. First, condemnation. Do not judge, says Jesus. It's actually the most famous Bible verse. Some years ago, the most famous Bible verse was John 3.16, but now it's this one. Do not judge. The world's most famous verse actually is the world's favorite verse because it seems to mesh perfectly with the zeitgeist of our culture, diversity, tolerance, and inclusion. There are no black and whites, just 50 shades of moral gray. Um, there are no absolutes because every lifestyle choice is just a variant of the same spectrum. Uh, who you choose to marry? Well, I choose to marry somebody else. Um, I choose to cohabit. Um, I'm non-binary, but don't judge or you will be judged. But it can't mean that because we can't compromise truth. Jesus is Lord. A king to whom moral categories do matter. Yet this same spirit still infects our culture and many churches. Uh, Many will say, why can't we just be a community of love? Why do we have to call sin out? Why do we have to impose church discipline? What did Jesus say? Don't judge. But in Matthew 18, Jesus commands that we are to impose church discipline when those who seek to live in a lifestyle other than that which Jesus outlines continue to defy his words. So what does it mean, don't judge? And the key to understanding this is a Greek word that Jesus uses for judge, which is the Greek word krino. And that word krino is borrowed from the law court. It is a word of judicial pronouncements. It means to condemn, to be disparaging, fault-finding or disapproving. It is to be condemnatory, hypocritical, or scathing of others. This then is very different to a loving admonition in faithful evangelism as we try to address the lifestyle of the person wanting to become a Christian. This, then, is very different to church discipline, where the love of the congregation for the person under discipline is seeking to restore him by grace. Crino, this judgment from the law court, is condemnatory. The motive is not to lovingly win, to lovingly restore, but to condemn. As I mount my own moral high horse... And look down on you in disgust, with a merciless condemnation and a bitter disdain. And the reason we're all prone to this is because at the very heart of sin is the desire to take God's place and to be judged. We love to be the one who decides on rights and wrong, we love to be the one who looks right. But if I'm to look right, I need to mount the judge's bench and then look down on you in the dock as I signal my virtue by condemning your own failure, as I play judge, jury, and executioner, putting your head to the guillotine while patting myself on my own back. When I was a law student, uh, one of the things that was the most fun of all wasn't in the law library reading the books, but the week when I got the chance to sit with a judge in court. And it was terrific fun, six feet above contradiction and looking down on the court and the guy behind bars in the dock. And the moment I felt most empowered was back in the chambers behind the uh, judge's seat, where he was considering what sentence to pass and asked for my advice. I gave it, and then he completely ignored what I said. But the point was, it was strangely empowering to sit with the judge. But in actual fact, the place I belong is not on the judge's seats, but behind bars in the talk. And the Apostle James says as much, brothers and sisters, don't slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or a sister judges them and speaks against the law and judges it. But when you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it, because there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Yet those who engage in this kind of censorious fault-finding live by a double standard, as I'm blind to my own failings, yet critical of others. John Calvin puts it like this, this vice is attended by some strange enjoyments, for there is hardly a person who is not tickled by inquiring into other people's faults. As we tut-tut others within society or even tut-tut and speak negatively about others within our church fellowship. And let me just say, as our culture continues to descend into dissipation and increasing ungodliness... What is going to happen is that the culture that we were part of in the Venn diagram overlap, the circles are going to increasingly separate, aren't they? As we say to ourselves, we can't be part of that lifestyle anymore. And therefore, for us as Christians, especially as elections come up, the temptation to condemn others who are living the alternative lifestyle is going to be increasingly strong. Here's the point. We are different, but we're not better. We are different because the Spirit of God is in us and the blood of Jesus has rescued us. But you are not better because had Jesus not intervened by the power of His spirits, or if hypothetically He was to remove His Spirit, which He can't, But hypothetically, if he did, we would revert immediately to that lifestyle from which we have been saved. In my last charge in England, uh, I would literally have to walk to church, sidestepping the vomits on the sidewalk, outside the nightclub, the morning after, the night before, And as I walked in my tie and jacket, sidestepping the vomit the morning after the night before, the temptation for me to feel superior and better as I headed to church to preach the gospel was strong. And I had to say to myself, yes, I am different by the mercy of God, but I'm not better. And were it not for the gospel of grace, I would be part of that disgusting life as well. And so the command, do not judge, is now followed by a warning so that you will not be judged. In Hinduism and Buddhism, karma is the force generated by a person's actions in this life which transmits into the next. It's actually brought out best of all in the movie Gladiator, where that line is said by Russell Crowe, what you do in this life echoes into eternity. And on one level, it almost teaches as though Jesus is now teaching salvation by works, don't judge or you will be judged. But the point is actually simple. If I pass harsh judgment on others, I will face the harsh judgment of God. And the reason is because the measure I use with my heart measures what is in my heart. So if I just go through life, six feet above contradiction, looking down on everybody else, passing constant judgment on other people, in actual fact, it says very little about others, but it says an awful lot about me. If in my heart I'm constantly passing judgment with a censorious moralism, looking down on everybody else, in actual fact it says everything about me. It reveals that my heart is not full of grace, very possibly that my heart has never been saved by grace. It reveals that I've not understood the mercy of God on the vertical axis at all, because on the horizontal axis, I'm harsh. If you're harsh to others on the horizontal axis, it suggests that you've never understood the mercy of God to you on the vertical axis. So, as I pass judgment on you, it's just like a boomerang that will actually come back and hit me in the face. If I judge you as worthy of condemnation, it is then the case that I am worthy of condemnation. For in failing to exhibit grace, I show myself not to be a person of grace. And Paul says as much in Romans 2. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself, for you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth, so when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and do the same thing, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you not show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is designed to lead you to repentance? Ancient Chinese proverbs say, he who points the finger has three fingers pointing back at himself. Those in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. Caution, says Jesus, judge at your own risk. For every time I draw up the indictment on you, the indictment on me is being drawn up in heaven." All this, however, is an area of discipleship we choose to ignore. This is a major blind spot, isn't it? If we were to list the most serious sins, it would be in the areas of dishonesty or perhaps lust or whatever materialism, but we don't think about judgmentalism. Yet, to underline the full horror of our hypocrisy, Jesus in verse 3 now enters into the the world of exaggeration and hyperbole. Have a look at what He says. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye but don't notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take out that speck from your eye and look not at the log that is in your own eye? So you're in the carpentry workshop and you're planing away at some lumber or woods and then suddenly this tiny little splinter enters into this guy's eye and he heads off to urgent care. And you're in urgent care with this speck in your eye of sawdust and the nurse says the, um, the doctor will be in soon to take care of your eye. Uh, he's a very good eye surgeon and he will need to go in and get it out. It's a tiny speck and um, he will need to make sure it's removed in case of infection. And after a while, you wait for about an hour or something like that, the door swings open, and in comes the eye surgeon. <clears throat> and it's really weird, because as he comes in, he's hauling this enormous plank of wood, this, this, this beam of timber, of lumber, that is stuck in his own eye. And he, he drags himself in with this, this beam of lumber, and the blood is pouring out of his eye, and you say, Doctor, are you all right? Oh, don't worry about me. He says, it's you I'm worried about. I gather that there's a little bit of sawdust in your eye. But doctor, you've got a a, 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 um, a beam of wood stuck in your right eye. and There's blood pouring out. Yes, yes, yes. Don't worry about me. It's little you I'm worried about. I'm here to get that little piece of sawdust out of your eye. It's a bizarre, grotesque, obscene picture, isn't it? Yet, it's actually what we're like when we point out sin in someone else without first attending to the sin in our own lives. You hypocrites, says Jesus. This would be eye doctor is a hypocrite. That word we saw a few weeks ago belongs in the world of Hollywood or Broadway. It means mask wearer or actor, donning the costume, playing the parts. And in verse 4, Jesus' tone is one of outrage and incredulity. How could you? How dare you? It's not that it's wrong to point out sin in the lives of others. And we need to have a culture within our church that we're able to do that as we lovingly admonish one another. Actually, letting sin go unchecked in the life of any church is sick and dangerous. But the point is, as I attend to my brother with his minor problem, I do need to attend to myself with my major problem. Physician, heal thyself first let me deal with my sin and then i can turn to serve you by helping you with yours hypocrite says jesus it's the only time in the gospel of matthew that word hypocrites is used not of the crowds out there but of the disciple in here And the point about this man is he doesn't really care about the glory of God or his own brother. No, the reason he's pointing out the sin in the life of the other is that so he can feel better about himself as he boosts his own ego in spiritual narcissism. But the point Jesus is teaching is that Christianity is not a moral code to be imposed on others It is a reformation I am to impose on myself, and it starts from the baseline of a brokenness that accepts the full depth of my own sin, that the problem is not cosmic evil out there, but personal rebellion in here. In the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 31, those who embrace Christ without first enduring genuine misery at sin have not really embraced Christ, for the essence of true Christianity is not seeking to reform others, but myself. Some years ago, there was a competition um, in a newspaper called The Times of London, where significant members of the uh, aristocracy were invited to respond to the question. The question was, what is wrong with the world? And various politicians and bishops wrote in as they pontificated that the problem with the world is the state of society or class division or people's addictions and bad habits. But one correspondent wrote in, his name was G.K. Chesterton, what is wrong with the world? He wrote, dear sir, I am G.K. Chesterton. If we're going to renovate our own lives, we need to start looking in the mirror. As Michael Jackson said, I'm starting with the man in the mirror. And as the Canadian psychologist Jordan Peterson puts it in his book, 12 Rules for Life, rule six, set your own house in order before you criticize the world. How then do we go about removing this this beam from our own lives and eyes? How then do we get it out? And that's the point. Because the answer is we can't. Because the answer is only the Spirit of Jesus can do that. Because the point is only the saving death of Jesus can do that. We can only see ourselves as we really are through the death of Jesus and the work of the Spirit in us. The point is that this condemnation of others, this this blindness to self is so part of who we are. Only God can change us. And so it's a prayer, isn't it? Help me to see myself as I really am. And by your Spirit, Father, change me and humble me that I might live with self-awareness and humility towards you. But before we move on, let me just say how attractive our church would be if we took this command seriously. Do not judge. How attractive would this congregation be if instead of arrogant censorship. There was in fact humble self-examination. What an oasis of grace and love and acceptance and freedom this congregation would be if instead of pointing the finger and tut-tutting at everybody else, actually the finger was pointed at me in self-examination through the spirit of grace. So there's our first point. It is one of condemnation, question mark, as we repent of that. But here's the second. It is accommodation. Because if the Westboro community is one extreme, then inclusive church is another. And mainline denominations like the Episcopalians and the Methodists have understood that in order to accommodate the hostility within society, what we need to do is to pivot. The culture is hostile now to the gospel, so we need to pivot and amend the gospel and change our doctrines so that the hard lines of the Bible's teaching become the soft lines of inclusion and tolerance. And if we do that, we will avoid persecution. And Jesus says, no, we are not to be condemnatory, nor are we to be accommodatory. Jesus says, do not give what is holy to dogs and don't throw your pearls before pigs or they will trample them under feet and turn you and tear you to pieces. America is a dog-loving country, but ancient Israel was not. The dogs here are not cute. These are not labradoodles. They're not cuddly family pets. In Jesus' day, the dogs were filthy, rabid, feral mongrels that would roam the streets. They were regarded with contempt. Feral and vicious, diseased animals dangerous and despised. So we don't give them the holy things. The holy things takes us to the temple. These were the priestly utensils. or the priestly animals that had been consecrated in the temple, they could only be consumed by the priest and his family. So it would be unthinkable for a Jew to go to the temple and take the holiest things and then give them to the uncleanest things, the dogs. It would be sacrilege to take holy meats and throw it to filthy dogs. And if dogs were despised as unclean, pigs even more so, they were the epitome of disgust. They were regarded as vile and stood as the picture of filth. And here, these aren't farmyard pigs, but wild boars, greedy and vicious, sullied even by pig standards. And if you came between a wild boar and their food, there was a clear and present danger that they would likely turn to you and tear you to pieces with their tusks and teeth. And the pearl, in the ancient world, it was incredibly rare. Sourced only from the Caspian Sea or the Indian Ocean or the Persian Gulf. In order to buy one, it was common for a merchant to sell his own business to get it. They were the most precious stones and of incalculable value. So you don't take the pearl. You don't take the holy things and then give them to the pigs and the dogs. You don't take the precious thing and give it to the vilest and most dangerous thing. The point that Jesus is teaching here is that whilst we do preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to all, nevertheless, when the gospel is preached, a fault line will open up between those who are being saved and those who are being hardened. And sometimes when the gospel is preached, the response from those who are being hardened will be vicious and violence. Sometimes the gospel will provoke a deep antipathy, aggression, and antagonism as it cements gospel enemies in their raging rebellion. This picture is actually quite frightening. Uh, These dogs threaten and snarl. These pigs charge against you. So let sleeping dogs lie. Don't provoke them. And there are two reasons not to provoke them. The first is because it risks the holiness of God as they trample the kingdom underfoot. But the second is for the safety of the disciple because it's possible they might turn around and actually try to kill you. So we obey our marching orders as we preach the gospel to all the earth. We do so freely because we don't know who's listening. Are they children who will be adopted in or are they the dogs? But as we preach the gospel and then encounter this kind of hostility, don't allow the kingdom of Jesus, the gospel of repentance, to incite further sin. Don't allow the kingdom of Jesus to provoke the enemy into further rebellion and antagonism. All of this takes us to a debate that was live in the early church which was really a debate around Matthew 10 where Jesus says, when you preach the gospel in one town and are rejected, flee to the next. And the debate was really between Tertullian and Origen. Tertullian's position was that all flights was apostasy. His view was that in Matthew 10, it's not a template for all mission, but just for the initial disciples. All flight is apostasy. Stand firm, said Tertullian. Preach the gospel and be martyred there and then for it. And it was Tertullian that came up with the famous line, The blood of the martyrs is seed. And we add the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. But Origen said, No. To engage the enemy and to do so is to provoke sin, indeed, murder. The loving thing is to withdraw. This is the New Testament pattern. If you're persecuted in one place, move to the next. And he wrote this, It is not dishonorable to avoid exposing oneself to danger, but to guard carefully against them. When this is done, not through fear of death, but from a desire to benefit others by remaining in life until the proper time. He said, It is not cowardice, but obedience to the command of the master that I may preserve my strength and employ it for the benefit of others. Tertullian is wrong. Origen is right. Don't provoke the enemy unnecessarily. I had a friend in England who worked in a university department. And this particular university department was full of LGBTQI activists and Muslims. And they would would bait him to try and get him to say something. And their aim was clear. So that he might say something anti-Islamic or anti-LGBTQ, so that they could report him to human resources, so that they could vilify him on Facebook and then oust him from the departments. And he came to me and he said, what do I do? I want to do the Great Commission and tell them the gospel. But they are raging against God in their hearts. He said, it's a vicious place to be. I said, say nothing, don't answer. Live a quiet life of godliness and proclaim the gospel as you relate to them in love. The first ever usage of the word refugee in English language came in the 16th and 17th century from the French word refuge. And it had a very specific meaning in those days, referring to the Protestants who had left France following the revocation of the Edict of Nantes in 1685 around 200,000 fled the uh, French Catholic government, fearing persecution and violence. The decision to flee had followed the horror of the 23rd of August, 1572, the St. Bartholomew Day massacre, which uh, led to the murder and massacre of 70,000 French Huguenots who were loyal to Calvin's teaching as the Streets of Paris ran red with bloods. And they fled. Those who couldn't flee were murdered. They were excommunicated and imprisoned for 30 to 35 years. That decision to flee was right because the culture and the climate in France was highly hostile to evangelical Christians. They fled because staying was dangerous. And actually in God's economy their decision to flee meant that England was filled with reformed believers who then actually served the great reformation in England as it was raging under bishops Latimer, Ridley and Cranmer in the UK. Accommodation and condemnation. Two mistakes and dangers Jesus wants us to be aware of today. Condemnation. We don't go around the world looking down on others and pointing our finger and condemning in a censoriousness of spirits. But equally, accommodation. We don't pivot into inclusive church. We don't accommodate sin. Jesus says we are to be those Who live a life of truth and grace. And I think, what about you? This surely is pictured beautifully in that episode in the Gospels where Jesus meets the woman caught in adultery. He doesn't condemn her, but neither does he accommodate her sin. He doesn't condemn her, he forgives her her sin. He loves her with a heart full of grace and mercy. But he doesn't accommodate because the command is to go now and leave your life of sin. This is the mark of the true church. This is the mark of the authentic Christian. As we live a life of truth and grace, grace as I repent of judging you, yet truth as I seek to live a life in line with the lordship of Jesus and the beauty of his grace, in thankfulness to him, because as he hung at Calvary, he bore the full weight of our guilt, the judgment I deserve. And as we marvel at the forgiveness of his sin, we long to be a people by his spirits who live lives of truth and grace. Let's pray together then as we sit. Our Father in heaven, we want to repent today of the way in which we are both wrongly judgmental, indeed, wrongly accommodating. Help us to be those who so understand the cross that we live with grace to others and in truth before you. Fill us with your spirits. Enable us to have hearts softened by the shed blood and broken body of your Son. And we praise you today that there is a Redeemer, a precious Lamb, the Messiah, and the Holy One who has saved us